Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer Jonathan Hardin, author of the book Soul. Does football care about developing the person as much as the player? Speaking to coaches, psychologists and teachers around the world, Jonathan investigated the ways in which being an athlete doesn't mean giving up on personal development. I talked to Jonathan about the dangers of high performance mentality and the price humans pay for devoting their lives to non-stop productivity and the pursuit of excellence. It's a mindset that seems increasingly popular in the world, but one that I feel is dangerous as it can lead to feelings of inadequacy, failure and exhaustion. I talked about all this and more with Jonathan, a man who's researched the subject very thoroughly. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Jonathan, welcome to The Reset. Thanks for having me, Sam. Looking forward to it. It's a real pleasure. Um, Soul is a fascinating book, and and I feel it's very relevant to the times we live in, quite counterbalanced to a lot of the other sort of thinking that's being um, uh, you know, broadcast these days. How did the book come about? What inspired it? I think after the first book I wrote, I still had some questions. So my first book was kind of just about coaching in Germany. And I had a really great response from coaches. And it made me think and I sort of thought, well, what's the what's the natural next step to, to this conversation? And it was basically just, does sport care about people? And I asked that question a lot, generally. And I started to think about it more and more. And I started to look at my interactions with sport and, and other people I know, how they are in sport. And it just increasingly became clear that sport is very much an exploitative industry and it's there to to take people, use people and take advantage of them. It's not very often that the person is looked after. You know, where, mm. when, when I say the person, I mean, you know, them as an individual, as a human, like outside of a performance sense. You know, I'm not talking about whether they can perform on the pitch. I'm talking about them, their family, their own mental health, their own mental well-being. What, is that something that sport cares about? It's particularly at a very high professional level. And I was just very intrigued to see who I could find that does do that and does do it well and whether it was possible, basically. So I asked that question. I thought, right, let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you, you've gone all over the world speaking to people of all in different, I mean, it's, it's mostly football centered. Yeah. Um, soul, but it, you know, you look at other sports as well. Tell us a bit about the people you met and the things you learned. Well, the timing could have been a little bit better. I started just before the pandemic and I was able to travel to Denmark and to Sweden and I would have loved to travel to other places. But, you know, soon after mm. that, no one was going anywhere. So then it became a lot of phone calls. And, and that was, you know, that still has a lot of weight and I enjoyed that. But I spoke to people in Oakland, you know, they were really interesting uh, Oakland routes to talk about them and how they how they've developed a community, how they focus on the we rather than necessarily the me. I thought that was really interesting. Spoke to people. Yeah, the visits to Denmark and Sweden were really interesting just to be on the ground and see it in action. I'm particularly blown away by 
Nord Zealand, you know, Tom Vernon, the way that he set up the academy there to very much focus on character development. How can we develop you as people and then celebrate you, whether you become a professional footballer or you go to Harvard? You know, that's a success for us because it's a success for you, mm. which I thought was really great to see. Um, spoke to people in Major League Baseball as well, Toronto Blue Jays, how they try to make their performance center a little bit less performancey or at least considerate of the other aspects of, of development that don't just include how well you hit or catch the ball. But most of it was football, yeah. I mean, there are some good examples. You know, I think Nick Cox at Manchester United is a, is a great example of how a football club can look very different if you just look at the first team and if you look at the academy. I think Nick, speaking to a lot of people outside in academy systems, would say the same about him. And obviously, he's far too humble to say that by himself. But there's someone who totally gets the, we're here to look after and help children. We're here to help young people. And I, I think he really understands that. And that gives me a lot of encouragement because the more people I spoke to, I increasingly found that there are individuals out there or a group of small people uh, a small group of people, uh, fighting to do it the right way. And more often than not, they're fighting against the current because most of the time, as I said earlier, it's a case of whether it's academies or professional pathways, it's, right, get them in as early as possible, identify some talent on some ridiculous model of talent ID, you know, oh, we can tell the next Ronaldo at eight, sure. Um, and then, you know, they're on a career path when they're still a child which is dangerous, irresponsible, terrible, all of the things that you can go down the road, right? But there are some people, and that was why I was really encouraged, there are some people who don't think like that, or at least pushing back and saying, no, they're 10, they're 12. Let's have a conversation about what it is that they want, where they feel comfortable, how we can help them develop as a, as a young person, not just see them as a potential $100 million asset, right? But is there a problem in as much as the more of the human side you focus on um is there is there a correlation between that and success levels because i would assume that at an elite level the less human you are and the more you treat them like commodities in your business the more on-field success you're likely to have is there any evidence for that though well it's not always the case i think it's it, it shows i mean australia probably have the best approach to well-being and they have been able to set up a framework in conjunction with the Wellbeing Science Institute, which is just a really, really fantastic organization that have developed a way to create a model and a program for well-being inside elite sporting organizations and then use tools to measure it so that we're also talking about it in a way that makes sense. And it's not just, oh, he's great, he's bad. You know, I think part mm. of the problem with a lot of this human development stuff is that people don't see a way in which to have a number. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a philosophical battle because if you start to go down the we need a number road, then you step into analytics and then there's the potential that you end up just becoming another department, right? Oh, yeah, number X, that means they're doing well, blah, blah, blah. But this method of measurement is not is not as reductive as just having a value, right? It's more of an indication to inform discussions and therefore improve someone's well-being. And in Australia, they've done a great job, especially in the NRL, um, in rugby league, where they've effectively got two well-being officers in each club. One is for career transition and the other is for psychological well-being um, or all levels of well-being, but primarily psychological. And they, over the course of a season, work with individuals who voluntarily want to do it. It's not a, you know, it's not a compulsory part of, uh, of, of the setup. And at the end of the season, they can track how well-being is developed and progressed at an individual basis and at an organizational basis. And the best part of it is, on the whole, the teams that are winning on the field have a higher well-being rating. So mm. at the end of the season, it's really interesting to see the teams that are in the well-being table at the top are also at the top on the field. So there's, there's, there's definite correlation. And it makes sense. Like, think about it logically, right? Would you want to work for or be employed by or play for an organization that cared for you as an individual and your family and everything about you and your own personal development in this very small period of your life, let's not forget, 20 to 30 if you're lucky, maybe 35, right? That's 15 years. And if you're lucky to live to 80, talking about a very small percentage of your life. And that period really sets you up, solidifies who you are as a human, effectively, right? For the rest of your life. Would you rather work for that kind of organization or would you rather work for someone who's going to give you more money but not care for you? 
And I think mm. it, you'll find that a lot of athletes will would rather work for the former because they know they're going to be healthier when they leave the sport. They know they're going to have a better time during the sport. And in most cases, if you are invested on that level, you are going to perform better. It's, it's just natural. Like if you work for anybody who you can tell that there's a, a relationship there and a care there beyond just what your productivity is, you will deliver more. And, and I think the, the temptation is to believe that oh, if I just treat you like a commodity, then you know, you're, all you need to do is focus on the football, right? Just focus on the sport and you'll be fine. It, it's just, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not enough. It's not true. And I think that people who, athletes who are cared in a different sense, cared for in a different sense, they're more invested because it's, it takes the pressure off to a certain extent. There's going to be so much external pressure, right? But internally, if you know that your organization, your teammates support you beyond just your productivity, obviously that's in a sporting organization how you're measured, but also who you are as a person, how you are with other people, what are your relationships like? Those are the kind of things that I think people also value. And ultimately, if you start to you know, see progression and development in those areas, you're, you're going to end up performing better. So let's go right, right down to basics here. What when we talk about oh, you know, elite sports sacrifice the human being? What characteristics or traits are you specifically referring to there? If I'm putting my kid into a, an elite sports academy, what are the parts of his uh, his or her personality that might be sacrificed in comparison to if they had a a life going to an ordinary school, for instance? Well, I think a lot of social skills are potentially, I mean, social skills in terms of teammates, sure, that may well be developed, but you're talking about skills like empathy. You're talking about the ability to regulate or control your emotions that are often neglected. There's also just a sense of often, not necessarily, but sometimes a case of selfishness that's developed in an academy setting because you're effectively consciously, subconsciously asking for the child to be this sort of ruthless pursuit, to follow a ruthless pursuit of professionalism from a young age. So then you start to realize you're competing against your teammates from a younger age, which is not necessarily a healthy character trait to have. I'm not saying you don't want people to be ambitious, absolutely. But if it's if it comes too soon and it's you're not able to regulate it, it gets difficult. I get we're effectively talking about environment here, right? We're talking about can you put children in or young people in the right environment so that they are developing as humans as well as as athletes. And it's a very fine line between getting both at the right level. You don't want them to lean too much to one side and have a lopsided understanding. You know, you want to avoid this sense of I am who I am if I perform well. You know, everything about me is based on my performance. You want to start to move away from that or you kind of want to avoid it generally because if at 18 or at 16, you, you have a young person who starts to value themselves based only on what they do on a Saturday at three o'clock, something's, something's not right there, right? Obviously, there's going to be a degree of importance on how they play. That They, they want that. That's, that's normal. If you want to do something, you want to do well in it. So if you don't, you're upset. That's totally normal. But... There has to be opportunity during the course of the week to also op- offer up or open up other parts of their character. Who are you? What do you like doing? My favorite example is always like, okay, if you're a creative player, are you a creative person? Do you like to paint? Do you like to play music? Do you like to DJ? What, do, what is it that you like to do that could correspond to how you play the game? And I think there's not enough investigation or experiment in this space because you can actually open up a really other side of someone. And then you're able to say, okay, I didn't play well on Saturday or we lost the game on Saturday, but you know what? We're going to go back to training next week, but also oh, I'm going to play some guitar tonight. And that's going to, it's going to bring me back and remind me that I like it, that I'm also okay. I can find some emotional stability there, some grounding. Um, and I think there's a, there's a level of, of managing your, your happiness, your well-being by not just determining or defining yourself by your performance. That's something you have, to, you have to avoid. But yeah, like I said at the beginning, you know, you want to, if you're in this situation, your kid's going here, you want to make sure that they're also developing things like empathy. They're also developing things like uh, good, positive relationships. You want them to think about who it is that they are as an individual, the character traits that they have. Can we have respect? Can we be uh, kind? Can we be thoughtful 
um, you know, what, but also it's not just like some template of, of character traits. You know, there may be things that the club wants to pursue that the club wants to represent, but it's also giving the person the opportunity to find out who am I, what's important to me and of offering up experiences and opportunities to go and do things. I know that Liverpool, for example, at their academy do a great job with, with young people. Um, they take them into the city. They give them the understanding of what it means to be here, to, to play for this team, to, and what this city means culturally, historically, mm. musically, socially, that kind of stuff. Giving them the opportunity to learn about their location, but also the world, uh, and, and outside of a performance setting, really. Because ultimately, that's what, that's what matters, you know? Because most, most people in academies don't make it. So let's not just neglect them. Let's give them the chance to have the best experience so that they walk away and they say, didn't become a professional footballer, but I love those two years. Um, if you want, aspire to be an elite athlete, isn't there uh, a square that can't be circled, though, in as much as if you want to be an elite athlete, you're not doing it just for enjoyment or your your ambition, at least, isn't to just be good enough? Isn't the whole point of being an elite athlete to, you know, everything does have to be sacrificed, social life, hobbies. Um, and and I suppose my question linked to that is, do, do those things, if, if you devote every waking moment you have to sort of ploughing all your mental and physical energies into being the very, very best, does that necessarily mean that you are sacrificing the development, for instance, of empathy and kindness? Not necessarily, it, and it's a totally valid question. Um, there have been plenty of examples of people who have sacrificed a lot to get there and have still come out empathetic, kind, caring people. Um, I'm not. I'm not trying to suggest that the path to elite sport makes you a terrible person, um, but I I do think it it narrows your perception. Uh, it narrows your field of vision to a certain degree because you're so focused. And I think for all of those who make it there are ten thousand more that do the same that don't and we only ever talk about the ones that do and i think that's my concern because there seems to be an understanding that to become an elite athlete you do have to sacrifice things i think to do a lot of things you have to sacrifice things that's normal the question is when is it too much to sac what is too much to sacrifice right mm. um and also if it's only working for one and it's not working for the 5,000 others, is it an effective strategy? Um, Marco Sullivan, who's one of the guys I met in Sweden, had this brilliant analogy, and I'll never forget it. He said, the academy system in a lot of professional football is a bit like putting eggs in a plastic bag. One of them is hard-boiled. The other 20 are all not. And you throw them on the floor. You pick up the hard-boiled one. And you say, look, it works. <laughs> and I think that that is so true. Mm. Because what we're ultimately talking about here is a system that is designed to try and find one. And I get mm. that elite sport is about finding one and, you know, ultimately you, can, you have to be at a certain level to reach the very, very top. I understand that. But I think it has to do better to make sure that this is not just a system about one. You know, I think very, I don't really like the word talented because what is that? Some people develop at later stages, some people develop earlier, but... I think very capable performers, whatever their sport, um, become apparent at certain points in their life. The question is, are we willing to stick around long enough? Are we willing to invest enough into them to find out when that is and what that looks like? Because it looks different for everybody. So no, obviously, I don't think the path to elite sport makes you a bad person and you can develop those other skills. But I do think that it, it really narrows your your vision and your um, perception because you're so solely focused. You listen to a lot of footballers. I get up, I go to training, I play, that's it. I eat, I wait, I train, that's it. Mm. And I think there's a missed childhood to a certain degree there because you don't get those years back. You don't. And for all of those kids who don't make it, I think it's worth asking the question, what is it that we can do to help them on that path, whether they make it or not. Because at the end of the road, whether someone sits down and says, here's a contract or they don't, you want to make sure that they feel more comfortable with who they are and what their options are. Because if not, <laughs> um, 
we're failing, I think. Does this all come down to money? Um, you know, football in the modern era has become a multi-billion pound industry. In the past, we the, the people, the even the top footballers seemed to be more rounded characters who felt like human beings. In many ways, that made the sort of link between fans and players stronger mm. because you could identify with them and there were guys when I was a kid watching football there were guys who played for my team who you sort of thought like oh he's like that could be me you know um now of course I would argue that footballers are much better now <laughs> in an objective <laughs> like you watch football they are better at playing football on the whole right um but is it all of, all of the sacrifices and all of this sort of drive to make it less of a, about a rounded experience and more about finding that one hard-boiled egg, to use your <laughs> analogy, is that just going to get worse as the as the football becomes more of a multi-billion-pound business and less of a kind of a, you know, a community sort of entity like it might have been in the old days? Yeah, I think that there's certainly a, a fear about that. But the greatest irony, of course, is that with more money comes more opportunity. So really, we shouldn't be thinking that way, right? It should be a case of, well, more money means we have more opportunity to do this kind of work because it costs, mm. right? You want to get the right people to create the right environment, you want the right infrastructure. But ultimately, yes, um, <laughs> more money means more pressure, means um, more expectation, I mean, I totally agree. When Even when I was younger, I was watching football. I totally used to watch and be like, oh, he used to go to my school. Or like, yeah. you know, there was certainly an element of like, oh, that could have been us in the park. And I'm not saying that, you know, the good old days, it should be like that more. I think there's an inevitable development in all sports where people, athletes have become almost, and this affects perception, they've almost become non-human, right? Look at their physical form. They're so unbelievably physically structured. Yeah. It becomes so hard to see them as a human, right? Well, this perception that their skill with whichever sport they're playing is so far from something that we can comprehend that they can't be human. Look at the language often in media or commentary that's like it's 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 he's a machine or it's beyond human, you know, it's beyond it's beyond this world. Right. So the way that we even talk about it just, just sort of removes us, disconnects us from seeing them as people. So it's not really a surprise, I think, that sport has reached a, a distant level in terms of what it was mm. you know, 20, 30 years ago. But I think we, again, we need to do more to make sure that we shorten that gap, that we remove it to a certain degree as much as it's possible. I think more money means more opportunity. I totally believe that. But I also think you need the right people in the building to that believe in it because so many organizations are driven towards delivering on what has increasingly become unrealistic expectations. I mean, if you don't win the league, everything's a failure. You know, I'm sure you saw this recently, excuse me, Janice Antetokounmpo, who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks, had this great speech after they, they got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And the question was, do you see this season as a failure? And he said, really? So you're saying that all the seasons that Michael Jordan didn't win a championship was a failure? You know, mm. is every time I don't win a championship a failure? That would be a ridiculous standard to set, right? We all want mm. to win, but sometimes you don't. So how about we say, yeah, we wanted to do better this year, but this has put us in a position to progress and maybe next year we'll do better. We're doing our best. Can we have a healthier conversation around what success looks like? That entire, and I thought it was brilliant, especially coming from an athlete, but that entire conversation informs of exactly where we are now with professional sport. We've reached this, if we don't win a cup or why are we celebrating a win or why are we, you know, suddenly we can't, everything has to just be about the ultimate, you win and everyone else is losing. And I think that's very unhealthy. That combined with the language, as I mentioned earlier, has put us in this position where really professional sport is so far, I think, removed from, from a normal human experience. And uh, that's my major concern that if it continues like that with the money that's involved, that we'll start moving more and more towards just an unrealistic, unhealthy system in which you can say, okay, you don't perform the next one in, the next one in, the next one in. And we, we need to avoid that. We really do. And I think there are people who do. I was lucky to speak to some of them for Seoul, but they're fighting against the tide. Um, what about <clears throat> what clubs do to manage the, when, when we go past what we've talked a lot about, which is how they nurture young players, when players make the breakthrough into first team squad and and they start getting the money, 
there's a huge amount of discussion about how that affects them. What do you think clubs, top level clubs do to sort of help these young men often from working class backgrounds cope with the the pressures that accompany almost overnight millionaire status when they're very young and that combined with all the pressure that comes from the social media, the fans and the media? I think it's a lot. I think it it's uh, it's tough. I don't know whether the club is the only person that needs to be involved. I think clubs could do more. Um, I think at the moment there are a lot of workshops, people coming in once or twice a year, ex-players, um, people who have uh, you know positions of expertise in certain areas. You know, how can we help with gambling addiction, for example? How can we help um, manage your finances better? You know, courses about how to manage that kind of stuff, because as you say, from one week to the next, you might be earning a lot more money than you've ever earned before. I think that that's, on the whole, that's a case of, you know, people coming in from outside, giving levels of, of you know, workshops and expertise that can be useful. There are not many clubs that often would run that stuff continually through the course of a season. Um, clubs have uh, player care officers who are Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There to help with a lot of the administrative or operations side of things, but... Some of those roles can also be more fluid and more involved in some aspects like that. They can actually have opportunities to help with learning. But on the whole, in, a, in most first-team environments, it's a case of everything's geared towards performance. We need to make sure that they're ready for Saturday, right? So mm-hmm. there's not always the most amount of time or willingness to devote time to that kind of stuff. Um, again... I think the best examples of this are clubs who have brought people in who have a perspective, who have a big picture perspective and are willing to sit down and say, what is it that impacts your individual well-being? So it's your physical well-being because you're a performer, right? But it's your mental well-being. Okay, so it's also your relationships. Okay, great. It's your spiritual well-being. Maybe you're religious, maybe you're not, but may have a connection. It's your financial well-being. How is that going? There are so many different elements. It's your environment. How are you feeling about where you are? How are you feeling about the environment itself, the world, your your place in it? How are you feeling about your meaning, your purpose as an individual? It sounds like a lot, but actually these are fundamental questions to our existence as people. And mm-hmm. at some point we will ask them of ourselves or to other people. And I think if you have someone, and you know, as I say, Australia are doing a fantastic job, definitely leading the way. Those people have this perspective and they don't have all the answers, by the way. I'm not suggesting they're coming. You've got one man, one, you know, one stop shop, one man band. That's not what I'm saying. They come in with this perspective, this overview and the tools to say, how can we regulate this on an individual and an organizational basis? And you effectively help someone by letting them dictate where you're going. You're just you're just a guide, effectively. And you're saying, okay, if we need a level of expertise or we need someone, we've got someone here. Here's, here's the, the, the chief psychologist at the club. Okay, great. Or we need to go outside. Fine. Okay, mm. I know someone who works with gambling addiction. Fantastic. Whatever it is. Um, so you're, but you, you need someone there who has that broader perspective, who's able to see the individual in all of their different areas of well-being so that you can, over the course of a season, over the course of a career, while that person is with that organization, make sure that they're managing. Because I do think that while there are some positives to workshops, 
you know, it is a one hour in and out short term situation. It may open some eyes. It may increase awareness. There's, there's no doubt about that. But what is the lasting impact? And is there any follow up? Because if we're talking about financial regulation, which is what you were just saying at the beginning, okay, so somebody comes in and says, guys, this is how we need to be smarter with our money. Yeah, maybe some people will make some notes and they'll take it on and that's fine. But what about three months later when their finances may look different? They may have picked up a bonus. They may have less. They may have more. Who knows, right? And I think if you have a, a continuum, that makes such a difference. I, clubs have to be willing to invest in it. There are signs that they that that's changing. Um, I saw a few months ago that Tottenham Hotspur had a had a well-being officer manager that they were employing. Manchester United have just done that in their academy. So I think clubs are recognizing the need for this role. They're recognizing the need because as much as it's not about performance, it will lead to a performance increase. That's that's the greatest irony. You 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 take people to this point where you say We've created a system now. We've created a framework that allows this individual to check in with themselves and see where they're developing in all their areas of well-being. Mm. Talk about performance. There's 50 guys over here who want to improve your, your sporting ability. That's not what I'm here for. That's what mm. they're here for. You go work with them. You want to talk about who you are? You want to talk about your life? All of the things we've just talked about? Come to me. We'll do it together. And that's that's the difference. I guess it's balance. Everything we're talking about here is balance. And and it, yeah. when you're in uh, the, this sort of environment, then balance is sacrificed because the the institution as a whole is only focused on one aspect of your exactly. life and your worldview. Um, what about like coaches? I mean, most of us, we don't know about the way clubs are run and all the different individuals and structures. We look at a club. I look at, you know, Manchester City and I think oh yeah Pep Guardiola's in charge of everything there and how happy the players are and Jurgen Klopp's in charge of everything at at Liverpool are they relevant you know to the culture of a club and are there coaches who you think get it right in terms of uh, you know uh, players well-being in a more rounded sense I think they are absolutely uh, valid and important coaches no doubt I think the coaches I think when you talk about elite players I think the, the really the best players in the world, they, they probably know what to do, when to do it. But I think coaches often have such an impact on the collective. And really, I think in the last few years, you've seen the impact the coaches have on the environment. I mean, you can take a largely similar group of players and put them in front of a different person who can create the right environment. You get drastically different results. I mean, I, I do think Arsenal are a good example of that. I think Mikel Arteta has done a great job of developing the right environment for that club in a very short period of time. I do think coaches matter. I do think that they get it right. I think that there's a fine line between understanding or demanding better performance and understanding the person. But I think the best coaches in the world will say that the first port of call when it comes to coaches in, coaching is about the person the best coaches will always say the most, the most important skill you can have is understanding how to talk to and relate to people because it's a people business. Mm -hmm. And then there's another level of that, which is I'm really interested in who they are as an individual so that I can understand what, how they work, who they are. And that's the way I can understand how to best get the performance out of them. That's ultimately what coaches are interested in. And I understand that. But I think the coaches who are willing to put in the time to get to know people and care about people get better results. I think Klopp is a great example. He's always been that way. Not only does he do that with his players, but he understands the role of the community. I mean, look at how different Liverpool the, the city, but also the atmosphere at Anfield has been since he was been in charge and the years before. There's a drastic difference, I think, because he understands the connection between the two. And he understands, ultimately, football clubs are there for the community. Yes, they're a multi-billion dollar business. Yes, absolutely. No, no denying that. But they are also a representation of a group of people. And if you forget that bond, then you forget your place. And I think if players understand that, and they have a coach who they feel cares about them and their families and their lives just beyond the football pitch. Makes an enormous difference. One thing I've noticed is, um, yeah, we're in like the noughties when I was first sort of involved in kind of football on a broadcasting level. There, there was it was the um, the so-called sort of golden generation in English football, 
And these lads, as brilliant a footballers as they were, not just the England players, but just football generally felt like a real moral cesspit. Every single weekend, <laughs> there was like a different Premier League football because it was when the money first got obscene mm. and bling culture was very popular. And it felt like in England, footballers were the equivalent of like gangster rappers, right? <laughs> and and they and and you could, you know, and I won't name names, but there was a certain deadness behind the eyes, right? And I would mm. be like, football's gone mad. And I would say to people, trust me, from my interactions, however small with with the with the sort of uh, professional footballer community, this is gonna end badly because these people are out of control. Now, I look at the England squad, and this is all like a, a you know anecdotal, really. Especially now, I don't really have any interaction with with footballers. But you know, you look at the Gareth Southgate's England, right? And you know, led by Harry Kane, you know, people like activists like Marcus Rashford, Declan Rice, who's you know very sort of active in in you know mental health in, in the community and stuff like this. These are like what my grandmother would have referred to as lovely young men, right? <laughs> now, I might, you know, who knows whether my perspective is right, but it does feel like there's been a change and the, the top players now seem to be more rounded, uh, the players that are coming through. Um, is, is that a fair assessment? And is there a reason for that, if so? Yeah, definitely a fair assessment and a very yeah, very wise, observant assessment. I think, um, I think there's a reason for that. I think that, again... Gareth Southgate is a is a great coach at creating the right culture, mm. but also we with the era of football has moved on. You know, I think about what the OOS was, um, not just you know in an, in another case, but like you know musically, socially, all of those things. You know, um, it, it was a different time, and I think that fast forward twenty years, the doors to mental health conversations around how we're feeling, who we are, have totally changed in a very short period of time. Take a rapid jump, an enormous jump, rapid development in a very short period of time. I think you can see it when you talk to different generations. When you talk to my parents' generation, they would probably say, oh, you, we were never that open. We probably still aren't that open about how we feel or what we're thinking. But now young people, I think, feel that there's space to do that. I think there's also a greater sense of awareness from athletes today, particularly footballers, around the impact that they can have. I think there's more conversation around impact. There's more conversation about being a role model. So like you were saying, Marcus Rashford, kind of ridiculous that that man effectively did something that the government should have done, if we're being really honest. But amazing that he felt he had enough power and wanted to do something like that. That speaks to, again, the development of a young man, not just of a young footballer. Uh, I think that, you know, we mentioned it earlier, academies finding space and time to develop people makes a difference. Increased space in society and conversation to talk about these things means that it's more likely. And then having the right people in charge, like Gareth Southgate, who's willing to cultivate a very open, honest environment in which people can say what they need, say what they feel to their feeling. And if you look at the way in which England has changed even its even its interactions and considerations of black players in the last 20 years, that's mm. also changed. I think that there's, in terms of inside the group, right? Yeah. Everything has changed. And so it's not really a surprise to me that there's more openness for it. But it is a very welcome surprise to a certain degree to see players so willing to, to take on these things on an individual basis and collectively because it makes you, you know, I was talking to, to my brother about this, it's hard not to like that England team, this England team. Like, they're mm. a good, like you said, like your grandma would have said, good bunch of guys. Mm. You know, it's hard not to think they stand for the right things, that they're, they're there, you know, that they care about it, they get it. And I think that's, that's become increasingly important. Do I like this team because I want to support them and they play nice football? That's one consideration. But I think increasingly for a lot of people, does this team have values that I also have? You know, that, mm. that's increasingly important, I think. Absolutely. Well, the the stuff that you covered in in Seoul and and the sort of you know the dangerous extremes of you know striving for excellence in everything mm. you do. 
that's really become popular in wider culture beyond sport. It's almost like wider culture, particularly business, you know, has sort of taken on the the learnings, like almost like some of the worst elements of, mm. of, you know, what was developed in the sporting world. And that's why today we have a huge amount of influencers, writers, podcasters, even academics, celebrities who are banging on about high performance, elite performance. Um, uh, what is it like? Uh, the, the tiny marginal improvements. Uh, the the phrase that always tickles me that I think is by that fella Huberman on his podcast is um, optimizing your protocols, right? <laughs> I find this sort of shit terrifying, right? <laughs> because I'm, you know, a reasonably lazy person. Probably, I suspect no lazy than the next person. I'm just a normal human who sometimes gets things done and some days just wants to watch TV, right? So Pretty it's normal. A bit, <laughs> so it's a bit intimidating, and it puts you, but it, but the risk is, I mean, you know, I'm 48. I've learned my lessons and I kind of feel like I've got balance and I can take this stuff with a pinch of salt. I worry about young people and the rise of this culture, making them feel inadequate. Uh, what's your perception on on this sort of stuff? And, and you know, having seen the extreme impacts from your research for soul, do, are you concerned? I am. I think my favorite example from the work I was doing um, was this idea that people love the concept of the process, right? Yes. So I am also interested in this because you hear athletes talk about it all the time. I think there's some validity to it, but I think that that validity died probably five, 10 years ago because now we have reached a point where people are so obsessed with the process that I think that people won't realize that that process never ends so that they yeah. will get to the end of their life yeah. and they'll be unfulfilled. Now, I understand that in elite athlete, uh, elite sport, you want to set yourself targets, you have to motivate yourself, you have to find ways to constantly seek improvement. I absolutely understand that. But there is a very fine line mm. between saying, you need to get better, you need to get better, and, I, and, and effectively telling someone that you're not good enough today. And that's, that's the issue for me. Mm. You know, you look at this mentality of, getting up at four in the morning. I'm a four in the morning guy. I go to the gym. I have this smoothie. I'm back <laughs> in the gym at lunchtime. I've absolutely done all these emails. I'm super productive. You know, okay, let's have a conversation about whether that's necessarily healthy over a long period of time. Mm. But also what you're trying to do is you're trying to be better all of the time. And if, if we're being honest, that's exhausting, first of all. Um, and secondly, if, if you're in an environment where you're constantly being told you need to get better, you need to improve, you need to improve, you need to improve, at some point when you leave that environment or at some point when you maybe have the realization, you also are not far away from someone telling you every day you're not good enough today. And how unhealthy is that? That's mm. not good at all. Yes, we want to develop people who are, we want to put people in environments where they can feel more ambitious and want to improve. You know, I never played to a very high standard of football, but when I was playing, I loved training and seeing the improvement that I was making. It's yeah. a great feeling. Absolutely. Okay, I'm dedicating my Tuesday and Thursday nights and five months in, look at the development I've made. I feel great. I'm playing mm. better. Great. But I'm also not going home and having an obsessive feeling about this or I'm not having an unhealthy relationship with it because my environment hasn't told me to do that. Right. I'm not, yeah. I'm not in a situation where I'm feeling... God, I wasn't good enough today, so I'm not a good person. I need to get better tomorrow. I need to get better tomorrow. I think that extends, as you say, to other areas of life, and I have major concerns. Obviously, you want people to find the room to develop themselves as, as people, but you don't want to do it on a timeline. You don't want it to be under an enormous amount of pressure. I think that that's really increasingly a problem. And I also think that the, just the nature of conversations around everything just comes back to performance. What is mm. that? It's mm. such a brilliant holding word for what I think in a lot of cases is not the right description of what we're doing. Not everything that we're doing is a performance. We don't need to assess or measure every single thing in our life. And I think the, the, the danger of entering this, I mean, look at it, but it's happening. Let's measure mm. our sleep. Let's measure our, let's measure our productivity. How many steps yeah. did we take today? What's our vitamin C level? You know, like, yeah. I think we have reached this point where we are in danger of, of every scrap of food that we eat, every drink, every step, 
every move can be put into some data set and we can have this enormous Excel that tells us we, at the end of the day, we're a good human or a bad human, or it was a good day or a bad day. We didn't yeah. perform well. And I think ultimately there are some things we need to bear in mind. You know, we all know what it is to be active, be healthy, look after ourselves, right? Those things are important. Give yourself the time to look after yourself mentally, physically, all of those things. Do those things. I'm not saying don't, but I don't think we need to enter this sphere of, of obsessing over analytics or our ability to perform as humans. And I think the, the part of this conversation, as you, as you rightly mentioned, is that this high performance has leaked into everyday life. And it's, it's terrifying because we should be able to just be human beings. Like you said, some mm. days we're going to be productive. Some days we'll build four pieces of furniture, write an article, pick up all the shopping, do all of that stuff and feel great. The next day, maybe we're less productive, you know? And all of these conversations never factor in other life events or situations. What about people with children? What about people, yeah. who, have what about people who have disabilities? What about people who are looking after their family? What about people what, in poverty? That's another thing. What about people thing, who have no money? Exactly. Mm. What about people who are barely getting by, who have been neglected by governments, who have been neglected by policies? It, it, it's such a blanket approach to um, the conversation. And I, and I think ultimately, like so much these days, unfortunately, it just lacks any nuance. It's very much a black or white, A or B, left or right situation. Mm. You're either performing or you weren't. You either mm. improve or you don't. And I, I think that increasingly we need much more room for nuance because people are who they are based on their context. They're based on their past based on their interactions and their abilities to have relationships. And if we start neglecting that just by saying, did they get up at four in the morning and have they been in the gym and did they have the smoothie with all their minerals? What are we, what are we doing? Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully put. What, what's um, changed in your, in your studying and thinking about all this, how did you change your approach to your own life? I mean, it feels to me like balance is the biggest thing that, that you're espousing here, uh, did it teach you a lot about how to achieve that? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've got a, a young son. I have to make sure my emotional regulation is on point because if I'm not looking after myself, how can I possibly be responsible for him in a way that I want to be, but also in the way that is going to change a conversation around how he's going to be a man, how he's going to mm -hmm. grow up to be a young a young man. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to consider all of that because i think in the research i realized i mean there's a lot of things that have happened in my life that made me aware of this before that work so it wasn't like my eyes were opened uh, i've had some things in my life that made me aware of it before but you do start to have conversations around what are the things i'm doing and how am i acting that are going to impact the people around me, whether that be my son or my wife or my friends mm -hmm. Also, how do I come across as an individual? It certainly gave me even more room to recognize that whether you're in an academy and in a professional sporting environment or not, was there space in your childhood, in my childhood, for that development? You know, did I have those conversations? Was I able to do that? And it doesn't have to be like a classroom. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about even just being in situations or having experiences where you were made aware of or became aware yourself of things like, Wow, how can I be more empathetic or how can I encourage that development or what does that even mean? How can I have more positive relationships? What is affecting my ability to spend time with other people? I think that work made me realize that I have to keep that in mind and I have to be really aware of who I am and how I act in the world. Not that I wasn't before, but it absolutely made me sort of double down on that. And also just made me very passionate to to talk to as many people as I could in in sporting environments and business environments about how important this work is because I really think we're heading towards a situation globally, uh, particularly in the West, I should say, um, where capitalism has put us down to a value. What do you bring to the economy? What do you bring to the world? And, you know... <laughs> A good friend of, of, um, of mine said, no one gets to the end of their life and says, I should have worked more. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really think, yeah, we can talk about work. You know, if you do what you, you're passionate about, people often say it's not considered work, but you are investing a lot of time in that. And I, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm saying don't work, 
obviously find something uh, that you care about and you can and hopefully you get lucky enough to do that stuff because not all of us are lucky enough to do those kind of jobs but mm. it is a case of 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 balance like you said but also recognizing that increasingly we're heading towards this situation where it's always a case of how much have you contributed what's your value to the system and uh, i don't want to sound too cynical but I think mm. if that's the case and you're aware of that sort of overarching cloud, you need to find a way to look after yourself, to put your checks and balances in for yourself. Because if you don't, it can be very difficult. Amazingly put. I think I couldn't agree more. You know, I think that people need to like themselves and feel comfortable with themselves and have their own criteria about what what, what represents value and not have that imposed on them on the basis of sort of superficial performance, whether that's their contribution to an economic system or, or, or a business. I think that's so key. And um, I think it's wonderful that, you know, books like yours and people like you are counterbalancing this sort of, you know, very loud, high performance, elite kind of uh, extreme madness that is being perpetuated by so many others right now. So I thank you for the book. It's wonderful. Links to it will be in the show notes under this podcast, wherever you get it. And I thank you for your time today. It's been a really interesting and inspirational chat. So thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Sam. I really appreciated the time and uh, just great to chat. That was Jonathan Hardin. What an interesting and insightful bloke. I highly recommend his book, Soul, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. And his first book, Mensch, which is about German coaching methods in football, became a real cult hit among elite managers across the world. So that's also worth a read if you're interested in that stuff. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. If you don't already subscribe to The Reset, then go to samdelaney.substack.com and you will receive this podcast emailed 24 hours earlier than everyone else gets it without any ads and straight in your inbox. You'll also get access to tons of bonus pods, newsletters, articles and occasional live streams, all for just a five for a month. Bargain. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. 